The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. With your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast during spooky season. Today, we radiate intrigue with Pat O'Connell, who is a communications consultant for high-tech corporations in fields as varied as nuclear power, aerospace, and antibody library solutions. She's a researcher, novelist, and nonfiction author who has written the book, Bleed Through, a true story of aliens, demons, and pure evil in texas now i for one am intrigued hi pat (laughs) hi christy (laughs) all right well this is going to be very interesting you know we've had the disclosure hearing fairly recently of course in august and so this is top of mind to everybody aliens and intrigue so let's dive in the story of bleed through is not your story necessarily It is partly my story in that my youngest brother, Jim O'Connell, drew me into it. Uh, He was actually doing the investigation of the subject, who is Clay Wheeler, here in Texas. And my brother was in Connecticut. And he knew my brother was developing a TV reality show about abductees. He wanted to tell their stories and help them come to terms with whatever it was, you know, whether it was some psychological process or whether they were really being abducted. And he said that this guy here in Texas had a story that was way bigger than Jim could tell in a one hour or even say three episode arc on his show. And he wanted to know, cause he knew I was a writer. He wanted to know if I'd be interested in interviewing this guy and maybe writing a book about the expanded story. So that's how it got started. Oh my gosh. And how did you all find out about this story in the first place? Well, because Jim has had been contacting people actually all over the world, he had connections on Facebook and, you know, social media and everywhere. He had connections with actually a fellow who had written a book about Skinwalker Ranch and Clay had contacted this guy. And this guy said, 
you know, I don't think this story is for me, but I know this guy, Jim O'Connell, who does, who is really talking to the experiencers and trying to help them through their, whatever trauma they've experienced or whatever questions they have, how this experience has affected their lives and their relationships and that thing. So he referred this guy to my brother and that's how that got started. And that was, of course, Clay. Clay was the one. Yes. Yeah. So what was his story? What happened? Oh, gosh. Well, it started in 2010. And the year before that, the county had decided to drill for oil on the airport property. Now, Clay, he lived and basically ran everything at this little airport in the middle of nowhere. He was an aircraft maintenance uh, repair tech and a flight instructor. And so he had been here, been at this airport forever. And then suddenly in 2010, the year before the, the county had drilled for oil, didn't find anything, pulled it out. But the following year, 2010, suddenly there were these sightings. People in town came out to the airport because there was a nice big open space where they could see the sky and they thought maybe something was going on at the airport. And that was really his first awareness of something going on in the sky. What was and the nature of this sighting? It was a light in the sky that was behaving in a way that somebody like Clay, who was an aircraft technician, who is a pilot, knew planes don't act. He knew it wasn't a plane. It wasn't the, a space shuttle. It wasn't a satellite. It wasn't anything conventional. So it was a light in the sky. But then when the people came out to the airport, he started trying to find out where it was. So he got in his truck and started driving around to see, kind of triangulate on where this light was. But at that point, it was just a light. But that's what got him looking at the sky for unusual things. Right. Interesting. So what developed from there? So then he started, he would go out at night and look for unusual lights and he found them and he had laser beams, which today you can't shine up into the sky because you might blind a pilot, which you could have then too, but that wasn't the law. And so he started shining just for grins, shining these lights at these strange behaving lights in the sky and he noticed they would jump and then at some point he's out there doing this and the thing jumped closer and so now instead of just a light in the sky there is this saucer an, an orb cigar shaped craft you know like we've heard of and then at some point he saw and this plays an important role in the story he saw this craft that he said was shaped like a hard shell eyeglass case. And this shows up twice in his story. And so, you know, he's seeing, and, and we could talk about that in a minute, but then he started seeing craft landing coming out in the middle of the night. Gosh. The first one was what I call the soap bubble. It was this giant soap bubble thing that looked like, well, it looked like a giant soap bubble. And he didn't know what to think of it. And it, he came out in the middle of the night and he tried to get his wife to come out and see it because he lived, he had an apartment at the end of this hangar that he owned and his wife was there and, and he tried to get her to come out. And she's like, oh, if it's a critter, just shoot it. And he's like, you don't understand. <laughs> it's, this is not a critter I want you to see. She didn't come out. So he's there and the, he waits for a while. He doesn't know what to think. And then this bubble goes up in the air and he expects it to go fly off and it dives into the ground. And he's looking at the ground like there was no splat. There was no disruption of the tarmac. There was nothing there. He didn't know what to think of it. 
And of course, nobody believes him. So this happens over time where he sees like there was a conventional, what you would call the Mexican hat style or pie plate kind of craft. And it comes out and it hovers. Well, there was a small one first and he was playing with it with the laser in the sky. And then it went away and he's thinking, okay, well, that was kind of fun. You know, it was an interesting, it was a saucer shape, but it didn't come close. Well, he's thinking that was it for the night. The show's over. And a little bit later, here's this huge thing that comes over and he's scared to death. And he's thinking, was this the dad ship? Was I playing with the little kid ship and the dad ship has come down to kick my butt? And he has his phone. He doesn't have a very fancy phone. And so he's trying to figure out how to take a picture. And all he got were shades of gray. He didn't get anything. And because that's what it looked like. It looked like shades of gray. So there were ships. And then he actually took a picture. He was taking a picture of one of the airplanes that he had repaired. And he had, it was under the wing repairs. So he's under the wing and he's shooting upwards to get pictures of the repairs so that he can send these pictures to the insurance company, the owner's insurance company. And when he looks at the pictures on the computer screen, he sees this pork pie hat, silver disc in the sky. And he's thinking, am I imagining things? And because he's, so think about through all of this, because he's in the piloting business, flying airplanes, repairing airplanes, FAA, all these regulations, you don't tell anybody you see UFOs. Even if one is right in your face, you don't tell anybody uh, because you could lose your license. And so he doesn't say anything about this. And, And now he's got evidence. He's got a picture, but he can't tell anybody. Thing that I think is good that came out of those hearings is that there should be no repercussions for whistleblowing like that and telling what you absolutely, saw. absolutely. Yeah. He did tell somebody. Well, he eventually, eventually, his employees. He had a I don't know five to seven employees, five to eight employees at different times depending on the workload. And at one point, his employees kind of had a a showdown with him, and they said, "When are we going to come out about what's going on here? When are we going to?" And talk? yeah. And so he finally had to admit, and then the other guys were like, oh, thank God, I saw that too. But they had other things going on there. So they had poltergeist. And so there were poltergeist events, like there was a a situation where Clay lost his keys. And he said, you know, he had a big wad of keys because he has all these buildings on the airport. He has a container, shipping container out in the outside to for storage you know he's got his cars his keys his wife's keys all these keys and there was a tag on it a red tag like a ribbon about i don't know eight inches long that was a remove before flight so when you're repairing an aircraft you put these little tags on different areas that you've worked on and then you remove them before flight to let everybody know that's completed it's been repaired you know all that so he had this tag on his keys He could not find his keys anywhere. And he said he always kept them either in his pocket or in his top desk drawer. And he looked and he looked, couldn't find them. So he asked his wife, have you seen my keys? Did you do anything with my keys? And she said, no, did you look in your drawer? And of course he had already looked. So he's just looking everywhere now because all bets are off. 
And then the heat kicked on in the hangar overhead, the heater. And when the fan started to blow, he started hearing this little ticking sound from way up in the ceiling. And it's 30 feet up. I don't know how far up the ceiling of the hangar is, but it's way up there. And he starts hearing this ticking and he looks up and he sees that red tag and his keys were up there. How in the world did his keys get up there? So that was his experience, but his employees then started talking about situations that they had had where things got misplaced or disappeared and showed up in some weird place, like locked up in the supply cabinet or something that they, they never would have done. So they had those kinds of things. Then there were one night he saw a shadow figure in the bedroom, walked across the bedroom. He was in bed with his wife. And he said, this looked like this old man, kind of like a somebody who would play the blues in the thirties or forties or something, but shadows. And he just kind of walked across the foot of the bed, turned and looked at him and kind of did this like tipping his hat gesture and walked over and disappeared through the wall on the other side. So again, his employees reported that they've seen ghosts or shadow figures or things like that. So every time he confessed something that he'd experienced, his employees were experiencing the same thing. And then at one point when things got really, they got worse, he noted that when his employees would clock in, their moods would turn dark. And he wondered, was there something in the water? Is something going on here that's making people crabby and fight each other or whatever? And then his wife went through a series of, I don't even know what to call them. I call them in the book, like demonic possessions or just possessions of some kind. But she started really, really weird things. One in particular incident where she woke up one morning, she looked like she was nine months pregnant. She was a young woman, thin, fit, and she was upset because it was ruining her figure. She didn't seem to worry about what is is going on here. But Clay noticed he caught her in the kitchen, sticking her fingers through a package of ground meat that was in the fridge for dinner to be cooked for dinner. She was eating the raw meat and that freaked him out. And he confronted her and he was wanting, you know, he was thinking there was something wrong with her and he wanted to take her to the doctor. And she was having none of that. And he kind of chased her around the living room. She's up on the couch and she pretended like she was going to, okay, go with him. She was going to change clothes, get ready and go, go see a doctor. And instead she kicked him, knocked him over. He cracked his head on the floor and he was out for a while. And when he woke up, she was gone. And when she came back, belly was gone. She was flat. Everything was fine. So this was only one example of the craziness that happened out there. So then we can get to the aliens. So there were a lot of those weird possession kinds of things, strange kinds of things. All that high strangeness in other cases. Very, yes, very high strangeness. Yeah. And just, I can't possibly cover them all in this interview, but I wanted to get to the aliens. The first time he saw aliens, he was, I think his wife was working late. She was a nurse. She worked at a hospital. And I think she was working the night shift at that time. She wasn't there. That's all I remember. And so he couldn't sleep. It was three o'clock in the morning. And he thinks, okay, I haven't talked to my sister in a while. She was working in China at the time. So it's middle of the day. 
for her. So he picks up the phone and he calls her and um, he starts, how are things going? And then he starts to tell her about the weird stuff that's going on. He says, you're not going to believe it. And she says, oh, you, you might be surprised. I might, I'm open. So he starts telling her about the ships that he's seen either in the sky or these things that are coming and either hovering or landing at the airport. And she's like, we'll have to talk about this when I get home. But in the meantime, while he, they're chatting about, you know, day-to-day stuff and he was kind of an antsy kind of guy. And so he walks over to the door that goes into, there's an office between his apartment and the hangar. And he walks over from the house, from the apartment, he walks over to the door that goes into the office and just being fidgety, but just being his usual, he kind of walks over and he opens the door to the office. And as he's talking to his sister, and as he opens the door in just a few seconds, he sees two aliens on his left, two little like small aliens, about three, three and a half feet tall. He said they were silverish gray, looked like they were wearing these gray outfits. He didn't say that they look like a jumpsuit or anything like that, or like that was their body or anything. But he noticed that he said they looked like they had boots on. He said they were like ropers boots, spray painted silver. And I guess that's just because that was what he was familiar with, roper boots or whatever. But he's describing this detail. But he said the most curious thing was that these two aliens moved away from him like they were a gate, like they were joined together and they moved away from him as he opened the door. They moved away from him like a gate. Well, so that caught his attention first. Then once he kind of grasped the idea that there were these two little gray aliens in his office, he looks over to his right and there's this tall tan alien. And he said he got the impression that that was their bodyguard because this was looked nothing like them. He said it was, as far as he could tell, it was naked. So, but he said it had no features to it. He said it was like a Ken doll, no genitalia or anything like that. And it was maybe seven feet tall. And he said the eyes were large, bulging eyes, like baseballs in too small of, a, of an eye socket. So they're bulging out. And he said it blinked from the bottom and the top. And then he said in the back, there were two bulges at the back of the head. And then he said, this thing took a step toward him and he backed out. He said he dropped the phone. His sister said that he said, I'll call you back. And then there was nothing until the next day. But he said all of this happened in the space of just a few seconds. So the fact that he got so many visual details out of that, kind of tells you how odd it was and how scary it was that, you know, it just kind of burned into your brain. So that was his first encounter with the aliens out there. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive.
I don't want to take too much of your time, but I would like to ask you a few simple favors. First of all, please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you're listening. You know, it sounds like a simple little thing, and it is, but it has a huge impact for us because it helps other people find us in the podcasting algorithms. I don't know how it works, but I do know that it helps a lot. Next, if you would subscribe or follow wherever you're listening, whether that's YouTube or Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, Spotify, wherever you're listening, just hit subscribe or follow, and that helps you and it helps us. It helps you because then you receive notifications when we have a new episode that's out. It helps us because again, algorithm, magic, I don't know what happens but it helps. And then finally, you can support our podcast in a tangible way by going to radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash podcast, and then click on support the show. Now we have a new feature too. We are now on Patreon. You can find us on Patreon. You can also find the link to Patreon when you go to radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash podcast. So on Patreon, for $3 a month or $5 a month, you can support your metaphysical and spiritual growth. You can learn about upcoming guests, and you can get early and ad-free versions of the shows. So please support us. This podcast is free for you to listen, but we have costs, and quite frankly, they come out of my pocket. So if you like this content, if you get a lot out of it, please see what you can do to give back. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Now, at some point, I believe this says that there was a shootout and a shooting. Yes. Now this had to do with that darkness that seemed to come over the people when they came to the airport and his wife. And I told you about the thing where she looked pregnant and she was acting strange. And then her personality started to change. Well, one day he and his crew are there at the hangar and they're working on airplanes and airplane parts and doing what they normally do. And it's the middle of the day and she shows up and starts firing. She had his 38. It's Texas. He had quite a few weapons and um, he was also a licensed gun manufacturer. So he had extra permissions to have weapons that normally somebody wouldn't. But he, anyway, she got a hold of his I think it was a 38 revolver and she just unloaded that in the hangar. Well, fortunately either she was a bad shot or everybody was able to dive under or behind something. She didn't hurt anybody, but yeah. So that happened. Right. Right. So what happened with these aliens? So he saw a number of different kinds of creatures and aliens like one day he and his wife were coming back from the grocery store and on top of the hangar was what seemed to be kind of an egg-shaped craft. And then there was like a stick figure alien on top of the hangar. Why, we don't know. But as they pulled up, that alien started running, dived into the egg-shaped craft and the craft went off. He saw these little what looked like, I don't know what kind of aliens they were, but he said one night, well, actually it happened for several nights in a row. He saw these ships that were hovering over the runway lights. And he said, it was like they were refueling from the runway lights. It's like they were coming into a gas station and there were these little aliens who were like servicing the ships. And there was 
he said it was 15 feet tall, he estimated, based on the height of the runway lights and the height of this creature. But he said that this other creature seemed to be the boss, you know, supervisor. But he said it was at least 15 feet tall and he had this round flat head. He said it was like an Oreo cookie. And he couldn't believe that this thing could even stand up, much less it would bend over, kind of inspecting what these other little guys were doing. And he said he couldn't understand why this Oreo cookie guy wasn't just falling over from the weight on top of his head. So he saw that. But what's really more poignant in this is that there were a couple of times where there were single aliens who showed up in the shop. And he felt threatened. I mean, at this point, he's seeing his world invaded by these creatures. So he started carrying a gun with him everywhere. He had a gun at his workbench in the uh, hangar. He had a gun on his hip. I mean, he always had a gun with him. And so there were two different occasions where there was an alien, again, one of the small grays, where he felt threatened and he shot each of them. So the first time he shot one, some of his employees were there. And the creature fell and it started to outgas or something. They said it was like this blue stuff coming out of it. And they left the hangar. They're thinking, you know, is this toxic? Is this going to, you know, hurt me? So they leave the hangar. When they come back, the alien's gone. Oh, my goodness. But it left what he describes as a helmet. But he said it was a little bit more like a skull cap. So it wasn't like a, you know, a motorcycle helmet or anything like that. It wasn't thick. It was just real, like a thin skin layer and it left that thing behind. So he buried that and hopefully one of these days we can dig it up. (laughs) Um, Bury it. I don't know. I don't know. He could never explain it. I mean, he told me that, you know, if you had told me a year ago or two years ago that I'd have evidence of an alien creature and I wouldn't be just taking it all over the country and showing everybody, I'd tell you, you were crazy. So there was something about this connection. And we kind of talked about this before the show. There was something about the aliens and the relationship he wanted to build with them that was really kind of profound to him. And the more I talked to him and the more I interviewed him, the more I realized how important that was to him, that relationship. And so some of the things that he did, like he felt really, really bad that he had shot them, but he was scared. And them, or did he shoot at them? Well, he shot two of them on two different occasions. So the first one was the one that they left the hangar with this alien bleeding whatever in the hangar and then when they came back the alien was gone but the helmet was still there okay yeah and then sometime later and I want to say it wasn't really that much longer after that I'm thinking that was Valentine's Day and this was like a week after Valentine's Day it was around that time period and he and his secretary were in the hangar you know it was after five she's cleaning up some documentation or whatever he's finishing up something in the hangar and he sees movement and he thinks it's a kid and his secretary comes out and she's trying to say, you know, she's trying to call to this kid. She thinks there's a lost kid and they're out in the middle of nowhere. If there's a child here, this child is really lost. And so she's out there trying to call to it 
and, you know, using that real high pitched mommy kind of voice and soft and everything's okay and all that. And then they discover that it's not a kid. It comes out, they see it darting from around. They've got gas bottle tanks of, of gases that they use for welding. So they've got acetylene and they've got, I don't know what other gases, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but they've got these explosive type gases in big, tall metal bottles. And this creature is darting around behind them and between them. So he's got the gun. He can't shoot it aiming at these gas tanks because this was not going to be good for anybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, He tells his, his secretary to get out, you know, out of the way. And the next thing he knows, this alien comes out and there's some kind of weapon. He called it a laser beam type of weapon in a breastplate in his chest. And it was maybe four inches in diameter, but it shot out this blue beam that went through the hangar, through the airplane they were working on and cut a hole through the outside of the hangar. I mean, through sheet metal, corrugated sheet metal, all the way to the outside. You could see the outside through this. Now he thinks this creature is going to kill me. So he shot the creature. He shot the alien and killed it. Wow. Yeah. Open with this dead alien. Well, as time passes, again, he had such mixed emotions about this. He felt so bad. And I didn't realize how bad he felt about it until probably the last interview I did with him because he didn't want to talk about it. He openly told my brother about it. He openly told me about it, but he had a really hard time talking about it. And finally he said, you know, I put him in a corner and got him to admit. And he said, I'm afraid people are going to see this interview or they're going to read this in a book and they're going to think I'm some kind of an animal. And plus the fact that he wanted to have a relationship with these creatures. He wanted to know what they knew. They desperately wanted to know what's beyond this earth and what's out there in the universe. And who are these creatures and what do they do? What are they capable of? What is their world like? He was so curious. And so he didn't know what to do with this body. So he put it in, he wrapped it in like really heavy black plastic. It may have been like, you know, like a garbage bag, but I think the way he was talking was, it was heavier plastic than that. Yeah. And then he wraps it up and then he got one of those machines that you can vacuum seal things with and he sealed it. And so now he's got this vacuum sealed dead alien and he doesn't know what to do with it, but he knows it's going to decompose. So he takes it to his cousin's restaurant. His cousin had a, a restaurant. I don't know. 30, 40 minutes away. And he asked him, he said, I caught this, I killed this wild hog because here in Texas, we've got wild hogs everywhere. I mean, if somebody wants to come to my property and kill some hogs, you're welcome to all the bacon you want. And so he goes to his cousin and said, I've got this hog that I shot. Can I keep it in your walk-in freezer till I find somebody to process it? So his cousin says, sure. So he keeps it there. And So while it's there and things are getting worse and worse and worse at the airport, he and his wife split up because at one point, again, with this craziness stuff, she got mad at him 
and slammed his hand in the door of her truck and then dragged him for like a mile and a half until, I mean, I can't even imagine not knowing, you know, you're in this truck and not knowing somebody's dragging beside you. But again, she was crazy at that point. Did he ever get a doctor? Oh yeah. He ended up in the hospital. He had, and I may get this confused, but he had, I think, both legs were broken. One oh arm was broken. He had some broken ribs, not to mention abrasions and all that, because at one point she opened, she realized he was there, quote unquote, and then she opened the door and then he went flying across this, you know, gravel road. So he had abrasions too. So yes, he ended up in the hospital from that. Well, he had wanted to take her to the doctor at one point and then she kick it, kick punched him. Did he ever get her to the doctor right. to find out what was going no. on? Okay. So obviously. So the reason I mentioned the dragging was, yeah, things were not going well, but there was the dragging, there was the other thing and then the shooting. And at that point he could no longer stay married to her. So he got a divorce. So the rest of the story happens when he's alone at the airport, at least at night, most of the time. And some of the stuff happened during the day. He had MUFON came out and investigated. And in fact, the first investigator who came out had a sighting that night. And so they called another, a higher level investigator who came in from Houston, did not have a sighting the second day, but still that's pretty cool. That is. Now I should say MUFON for those who are not familiar, Mutual UFO Network. It's a team, it's nationwide and each state has its own head of state and then the investigators who investigate and thoroughly investigate, I should say, these things. Yes. And those folks are really, really credible. They have a lot of experience. I mean, we had an event here in Texas, the Stephenville sighting several years ago, and I read that full report. And I mean, they looked at the air traffic control readouts and they could see what was going on. And I mean, these guys are pilots, they're engineers, they're going to know the difference between a star or a planet in the sky or the space station and something that's moving the way nothing should be able to move. And they're highly trained. They go through training to do this investigation work. Yes. Mufon came out. Yes. So they came out, they couldn't explain, they just recorded his case. And of course, since I've gotten involved, I've been reading whatever they recorded and actually were putting together a team to take this story to the next level, to investigate the rest of the story, basically, which involves, which goes back to the alien body in the freezer at the restaurant. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) We want to know about that. So Again, he's thinking, if you had told me I had an alien body and wasn't driving all over the country with this thing in my truck in a cooler, going on the Oprah show and, you know, CNN or wherever and showing everybody this thing, I would have called you crazy. But he said it felt so wrong what he had done. He felt so bad about it. He was just so torn. And so finally, at one point, his cousin said, you know, I know a guy who can process the meat. And if you want, we can have him do it. And he said, and so Clay says, well, thanks anyway, but you know, I've got a local family here that I've promised to donate the meat to, and it's okay. I'm going to come and pick it up. So he comes and picks it up. And 
he builds a box, he puts the thing in the box and he buries it. And he does a little, you know, at this point, his spiritual tendencies are starting. He's coming back to his faith. He's coming back to his Christian, actually it was Catholic faith. He was coming back to that, but it's kind of mixed in with Native American because he had a good friend who was Native American, but this whole spirituality thing, and he's feeling really, really bad about ruining what he felt like was this great opportunity to learn from these creatures. So he buries it. He gives it a little service. And so that's that. Oh my God. So in the process of my getting involved in this, all of this has already happened. And so now my husband and I, we go to the airport two or three times. One night we spend the whole night out there taking turns. He sleeps in the car. I'm sitting in, in the lawn chair out on the runway looking, come on down. You know, I want to make friends and nothing happened, but we gave it the shot. And so in the process of this happening, I get a call in the middle of the night and it's my niece. And she said that my brother died. He had had a heart attack in his sleep and I was just devastated. It was such a shock. He was supposed to be coming to Texas within a few weeks with a film crew, with all of his magnetometer and the Geiger counter and all kinds of instruments to try to see if there was something out there at the airport that was poisoning people or causing hallucinations or something. So those were kind of the things that I was trying to do, but I didn't have all the equipment he had. And then he was supposed to come out and he died. Wow. I'm so sorry. It was a gut punch. And he and Clay had become very close because Clay felt like Jimmy understood that desire to know, that passion to know, that fascination with who are these and what else is out there. Really, not just the aliens with all these paranormal events. What does this mean? What kind of, I mean, it's like supernatural, but natural. I mean, I believe there are a lot of things we don't know that are natural, that are completely natural. We just don't have the instruments to measure them. We just don't have the ability to scientifically evaluate them, but I think they're completely natural. So he and Clay shared that and Clay was devastated. So we kind of corresponding and I didn't know what I was going to do with this. And Clay felt so bad and he thought, well, okay, the whole project is dead because this was supposed to be the TV reality show and with maybe a book or a screenplay or something to go with it. Mm -hmm. And now what? Jim's gone. Jim's the driver of all that. I'm not qualified to do what he was doing. And then I think it was a year after that, I didn't know my sister-in-law and my niece, they were still grieving so deeply from this, it hit them so hard and so out of the blue that they didn't really know how to give themselves, how to have closure with my brother's death. And so I created a video, kind of a memorial for him. And so I sent it out, I put it out on Facebook and social media and emailed everybody that I knew Jim had been connected to, especially in the UFO abduction community out there. And I, of course, copied Clay. And I didn't hear from him. I knew he would want to watch it. I knew he would comment on it. And I didn't hear from him, didn't hear from him, didn't hear from him. And so I emailed his sister and I said, you know, I'm a little worried about Clay. I sent 
this memorial video out and I know he would have wanted to say it and, and I'm surprised that I didn't hear from him and I actually hadn't heard from him in a couple of weeks and she said he's in the hospital he has multiple organ failure he has flesh-eating bacteria if he survives they're going to have to remove huge swaths of his skin no and I think the next day I got an email from her that said he had passed away Oh my goodness. So that's where I'm sitting with the two men this story is about. Mm -hmm. And what do I do? And I really kind of sat on it for a year or two because again, I didn't feel worthy of taking over what my brother had been doing. But by the same token, I felt like this was an incredible story. Both of them were so invested in it and it needed to be told. And I said, okay, the least I can do is write a book. I can tell their story in the book. So that's what I did. And that was how Bleed Through came about. Now, first of all, I wanted to ask this like flesh-eating disease that Clay got, could that have been from the alien contact, something he picked up through, I don't know, touch, smell, proximity? Well, it could have been, but there's a twist at the end of the book, which I can't talk about. Of course there is. And it came after he had died. And I allowed, you know, gave his family some time to grieve and get their legs back under them. And then I called his mom and I wanted to talk to her and just, you know, really to show my sympathy and tell her how important he had been to me and how interesting his story had been. She wasn't crazy about the fact that he told it. Yes, because she felt like it had ruined his life. And really, it kind of had. But it was the telling of it or the story itself? She was kind of, I think, in her mindset, it was the telling of it. Because the events were going to happen, whether he said anything or not. She was just upset that he came out with it. But by the time he had passed away, she and I had talked before. She had talked to my brother before. And so she was becoming more accustomed to it. In the process of that phone call, she told me something that made me the classic record scratch. What? You know, you kind of have to go back to the beginning and look at everything that had happened in a new context. And this is the twist you're talking about. Yes. Now, what she had told me when I talked to her before, before he passed away, actually, was that when he was a kid, she and her husband, his dad, and Clay and his sister They had gone on a family vacation to Alaska in a travel trailer. And on the way back from Alaska, they pulled over. It wasn't an official truck stop or rest stop or anything like that. They were just really tired. Dad was tired of driving. And so they just pulled off at a place, you know, like where a historical marker was or something where there was an extra space to get off the road. And they thought, well, we'll just stay here for the night. And so, you know, everybody piles into the travel trailer and they're sleeping. Well, in the middle of the night, She wakes up and she hears this strange noise and she described it as a clicking sound, but she said it sounded like a language, like there was a conversation going on in these clicks. So there'd be a clicking sound here and then clicking sounds over here as if it were responding to the first thing. And she said, I knew right away that it was aliens. And she had never had an experience with aliens. She had no background in this. She had no reason to think that. And she told me, she said, I don't know why I said that. I just had this strong sense that it was aliens. 
And so she told her husband, we've got to get out of here. So he throws on his clothes and dashes out into the truck. Presumably there were aliens out there that he dashed out in the midst of. I don't know, but the dad would never talk about it. And so he gets in the truck, they zoom away and they get to the nearest rest stop or gas station or something with bright lights and they've missed, they've lost some time. But she said she believed that at least Clay, if not all of them had been abducted that night. Mm. And interestingly enough, through this whole series of interviews with Clay, and he had some weird experiences where he wakes up outside in somebody else's clothes. What? His, yeah. But he kept denying that he had been abducted. Now, my brother had gotten him to agree to be hypnotized to see if maybe they could regress him and find out if he had been abducted or if he was just sleepwalking. But how do you sleepwalk, wake up outside, and your house is locked from the inside? Mm. That one I can't explain. <laughs> so, but for whatever reason, he seemed to resist the notion that he had been abducted. Now, I don't know if it was scary to him or what, but you would think of all the things that had happened to him and all the things he had seen that he would be open to that, but he wasn't, I don't know. So mm -hmm. at the very end, we were, uh, the last time we interviewed him, we were sitting out on the runway. Well, not near the runway. He's sitting in a lawn chair with the runway in the background. And I said, so what would you say is the overall feel of these experiences? Would you say they were overall a negative experience or an overall positive experience? And he said, you know, I'd have to say it was negative, but it was like, it, it's so cool the way he says that it was a negative experience, but his eyes lit up and he starts to kind of get this energy. It was like being in a sci-fi movie every night. It was so cool, like on the science channel. So even though his words were saying it was a negative experience, his body language, his eyes, his tone of voice, everything said he was in it. He was 100% in it. He loved it. Yeah, there were bad parts. There were scary parts, but he still maintained this fascination, this intrigue that you mentioned, this intrigue, it was just so compelling to him. And honestly, I wanted some of it. And so, you know, I went back out to the airport and decided maybe if I stay out here by myself, nobody's there. This is completely deserted. Maybe they'll come see me. Oh, that is brave. <laughs> well, I had a gun, but I was scared of the gun too. I mean, I have a weapon. I know how to use it, but I really don't like guns and I really don't want to use them. But if push came to shove, I had, I mean, there could have been a pig. We have wild pigs in Texas. So this is true. Yeah. So, I mean, there could be really real threats that I would need a gun for. So, oh my goodness. Okay. So as far as we know, the alien body is still buried. As far as we know. Yes. The artifact from the alien body, the skull cap yep. is still buried. Has anybody tried to look for them? Well, that's phase two. So I have just recently started putting together a team to go do that. And the thing is that the site might be booby trapped. So we have to be very careful. We don't want that. And this is one reason why I don't tell people where this site is, because I do not want people going around digging holes everywhere 
anywhere near this airport because they could blow themselves up and our evidence if there is any. So we're putting together a team. We've got technology for like magnetometer, ground penetrating radar, Geiger counter, LIDAR, which LIDAR has been used from satellites, I believe, to find some of these hidden ancient cities through the underbrush. So we're hoping that with all this technology, we're going to be able to find the site. And Clay gave me kind of the pirate treasure type instructions. So many paces this way and so many paces that way to generally where it is. So I'm concerned about using like traditional ground penetrating radar, you're basically running this device across the ground. Mm. And depending on what he might have booby trapped it with, I don't know if the GPR could trigger it. So So, you think that Clay might have booby trapped it? Yeah, he said he might have booby trapped it. He didn't know? He didn't know. Now, this goes back to the fact that he was getting sicker and sicker and sicker through the course of these three and a half years. He had been in the hospital because his wife dragged him. There was another case, and I did not get to the eyeglass case, UFO. The first time he saw it, it shot him with what he called the headache beam. He said it felt like there was a bucket of water, hot water, being poured into his head and going down into his body. And then he got the worst headache he's ever had. And the second time he saw this craft, it was hovering so low between the hangar and the terminal building that he could reach up and touch it with his hand. He could touch the bottom of it with his hand. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And I said, what did it feel like? He said, it was like wet leather. I think it was alive. He said, I think it felt like he was touching the skin of something alive. Mm. Wow. So he touches it. And as soon as he does, it sprays him with something. And that gave him burns all over his body. Again, he ended up in the hospital. And the doctors at the time, according to Clay, I don't know, this is information I still need to try to track down and verify. But he said that the doctors were arguing over whether he had Uh, chemical burns or radiation burns. He said in some ways they were like one, in some cases they were like the other, but the bottom line was he had these serious burns all over a large portion of his body. So he ended up in the hospital again. He's on medicines. So he had been on a lot of medicine. So when he told my husband, I might've booby trapped it. And my husband said, well, what would you have booby trapped it with? And he said, hand grenade. Oh, but I was on a lot of drugs at the time. Now, when somebody says I was on a lot of drugs at the time, you think recreational drugs. Well, Clay was on painkillers. He had been in and out of the hospital for various reasons. So he was damaged and he kept getting sicker and sicker throughout this three and a half years. And actually, when I met him in 2015, he was getting sicker and sicker. When we went out to the airport, he was having trouble breathing. He had a clot in his lung uh, that he said, you know, the doctor said would have killed a normal man. And he had been living with that, but he had trouble breathing. So phase two is to go and find these clots. Yes. Okay. So yes, I was talking about the booby trap. So phase two is to get along with the technical people that we need to search the site and 
see if there is anything at all buried. Find the location where the ground has been disturbed and then find out, does anything look like a hand grenade in there? And again, because he was a licensed weapons manufacturer, he would repair antique guns and things like that. And he got licenses for things that normally you don't get licenses for. But anyway, so we'll go out and we'll see if there are any clues that there is something that we need to worry about. We have a munitions expert on the team, as well as the technical aspects. We need a film crew and we're going to have some really interesting other things. We may have remote viewers, see if they can figure out what's here and maybe what happened. We've got a psychologist who's going to try to, I don't know if you could call it psychoanalyze, but kind of analyze the clay character to see, does this person sound like a crazy person? Or does this sound like a person who was having some crazy experiences and just trying to deal with it? Mm -hmm. Probably not a bad idea. I think that would make anybody crazy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the interesting thing was at the end of the book, I have like one chapter where I go through all of being the skeptic. I go through being the skeptic and I'm a true skeptic. I'm open-minded with, if I have evidence right? that I'm not going to deny something like Scully and Mulder on X-Files. Scully had seen so many things. There is no way she should have still been a skeptic. She should have believed that's not a real skeptic. That's just somebody who that's a debunker or something. Anyway, I'm open-minded. So at the end of the book, I go through a chapter where I start arguing with myself. I played devil's advocate. So he was on a lot of drugs. Mm -hmm. Could any of those drugs have caused hallucinations? Well, how those drugs wouldn't have caused his crew to hallucination, to hallucinate things. Was he making things up? Maybe some, I think my husband calls it putting hair on the story. It's like, you know, sometimes people exaggerate things or as time passes, your memories change. Or if you talk to other people who had similar experiences, sometimes you integrate things that they said into your memories and you don't realize that. So allowing for that, I thought each one of these things, I asked myself the question, kind of challenged myself to debunk what he said and what he experienced. But there was always this other little thing. And so kind of the last piece of that was maybe he was lying. Maybe he was making things up. Maybe he was imagining things. Maybe he was hallucinating. But it all stopped when he moved away from the airport and moved in with his parents. So why wasn't he still hallucinating? Why wasn't he still making things up? Why wasn't he still putting hair on the story? Why would all of that stop? Right. Moved? And so all of this you will be answering in phase two. I hope so. I and hope so. Be a follow-up book coming. <laughs> yes. Well, and, you know, theoretically, there will be a documentary because we're going to film every minute of the progress of the team from the first meeting we have and anything that we do. So it'd be kind of fun. And like I've told the members of the team, if we get out there and we dig it up and there's nothing there, well, at least we'll have the Al Capone's vault kind of story like Geraldo Rivera did. People were still interested in it. Pat, where can people find information about the next phase and find the story? 
Well, you can find the book. It's on Amazon. The website that I've recovered from my brother is Experiencers. It's just X, mm-hmm. P-E-R-I-N-C-E-R-S, experiencers.com. And the email that I'm using picked up from my brother, it's starmanjimmy at gmail.com. And I'm going to be posting progress of the phase two on the website, experiencers.com. And hopefully we're going to have a really cool story and an adventure and learn some things we didn't know and see if there's any way to explain it away, to explain away what he experienced. So the team is open. We're open to saying, oh, there was a gas leak from when the county drilled for oil in 2009, and it caused everybody to hallucinate and end of story. There was some kind of strange gas that came. We're okay with that. Right. We're not invested in there really were aliens. There really were creatures. Right. But it's a really cool story. Very cool story. So I would ask everybody to go see experiencers.com. That's experiencers, just an X. And follow up with the story. Read the whole book and find out the surprise twist ending at the end. Pat, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been fun and very interesting, if not just a little scary. Thank you so much. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind, Body, Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.